Welcome to another gospel message from St. Luke's Anglican Church, Clovelly. Uh, hi friends, uh, please keep Mark chapter 5, you might want to turn back there. We're starting a new series, we've uh, thought about rhythms last week, but for the next uh, little while, up till Easter really, we're going to have a look at Mark's biography of Jesus. I've always liked to start the year with Jesus, um, all the, the whole Bible is about Jesus, but the Gospels kind of bring us up close, and so that's what we're going to do. If you are someone who's kind of new to Christian things, this is a great time because whatever Christianity is about, it's got to be about Jesus. And so it's a good time to come. Uh, If you're a Christian, if you're feeling flat, if you're kind of coming back to Christian things, wherever you are, actually, we just want to keep coming back to Jesus. That's all we're going to be doing. And I'm going to pray that God would help us today. Why don't you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can uh, gather here. We thank you for answering our prayers for rain. And we ask that you would please send rain to those places in New South Wales and beyond where it is needed most. Father, we thank you that we can gather like this and we pray today that wherever we are with you, that you would please help us to see more of Jesus' power and of Jesus' mercy and of his mercy to us. And we ask in his name. Amen. At least one in seven Australians are spiritual but not religious. On, on the last census. Now, I get the not religious bit, okay? Um, religion, I think, for a lot of people is cold and self-righteous and judgmental and pretty much the opposite of everything Jesus is about. And we'll come back to that at the end. But the spiritual bit is fascinating, isn't it? Because even in our supposedly secular, scientific, technological, right here, right now, press, click, it happens, kind of society that we live in, the idea that there's nothing more and nothing beyond, and nothing after, leaves a lot of us feeling a bit nothing, a bit empty, actually. And somehow, in our Western society, we're still finding ourselves longing for something more, and something transcendent, and something lasting, and something spiritual. And Mark chapter 5 is one of those texts in the New Testament that really kind of pulls back the curtain to see this spiritual realm. It says that there really is something more than just what we can uh, touch and see in the here and now. Although you might have noticed it's not necessarily some comfy spirituality to kind of tack on to our lives. There's something darker here as well, and there's a man who's like the living dead. Now in Mark chapter 5, we kind of see like the spiritual underworld, a little bit like the criminal underworld. Now, most of the time in the New Testament, that spiritual underworld is kind of on the margins. And this is a a really important kind of thing to understand. It's kind of on the margins. But it's passages like this where it comes into center stage and is in the spotlight. Now, of course, um, underworld figures from, you know, the Godfather to Tony Soprano to Satan have always hated the spotlight. They're actually quite happy doing their kind of dirty work in the shadows and in the darkness But you see, something was going on in the first century in Israel that had forced them out onto the streets. There was a new player in town called Jesus. And Mark 5 kind of takes us through. It's like a showdown. There's like the pre-match set up. There's the showdown and there's the aftermath. And we're just going to work through that. And this is on your handout if it's a help to you. This time last year, we were looking at Mark's biography, chapter 1 to 4. And uh, the very last incident that we looked at was uh, when the disciples were kind of in a, in a boat with Jesus, crossing over this lake, and there's this super intense storm. Um, we've had our storms the last few days. And this is so intense that the disciples think that they're dead men. 
But Jesus subdues the storm. He just speaks a word and the storm stops and the winds and the waves die down, which makes the disciples even more afraid now of the one who is able to stop the storm. As soon as they get their toes on dry land, Jesus is then confronted by a man that no one can subdue. And now let's just come back to the text and have a look at it again. Uh, I'm going to read from Mark 5 and verse 1. We're on page 840 if you've got one of these church Bibles, or Mark 5 verse 1 if you're on your smartphone. The disciples and Jesus came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Right, the the disciples have felt that they were dead men on the lake. Now we meet a man who's living among the dead. A man somehow under the control of the spiritual underworld. Um, He's got an unclean spirit, it says in verse 2, or it says uh, a demon in verse 16. Um, The New Testament kind of symbolically describes almost like a three-decker universe, right? There's the heavens where God lives and rules. There's the earth where humanity lives. And there's the underworld, because where do we put our dead? We put them under. Um, That's where the, the kind of the spirits, the unclean spirits are, and where Satan rules. And so here's this man so affected by that underworld that no one could subdue him. I mean, they've tried to bind him, even with chains. It just hasn't worked. Maybe they did it for their own protection, perhaps for his. Um, He's been now exiled to live in the tombs, alienated from his community, the stench of death around. He's crying out with pain. He's self-harming, and he's dehumanized. A precious human being, made in God's image, marred beyond human recognition. It's as if Satan has kind of stolen one of God's masterpieces and scrawled, you know, Satan was here, and then hung it up in his own evil underworld gallery. It was a couple of years ago, there was, um, there was a Monet um, in uh, the National Gallery in Ireland, and uh, someone put, a, put their fist through it. And uh, so he, he said originally that he was getting back at the state, uh, but um, when he finally got to court, this man decided that he'd just had a faint and, uh, you know, just kind of leaned against it accidentally in a fainting fit. Um, the jury said five years in jail that they didn't believe that. Um, and meanwhile, the painting, worth about $13 million, took 18 months to restore. Oh, we'll come back to that one. But here's a man, a human being, kind of defaced, dehumanized, and it's no accident. This is kind of Satan's MO, always destroying, defacing, dehumanizing. Now, I just want to pause for a moment and acknowledge that, yes, the Bible's taking seriously what a lot of Western modern people dismiss as fantasy. The funny thing, though, is even for us modern scientific people, we are fascinated by this spiritual realm and spiritual underworld. It just keeps coming through. So over the last you know, couple of decades, you've got what um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Charmed, Harry Potter, Supernatural, Stranger Things, Miraculous Ladybug, our kids are watching it. It's like for eight-year-olds. But fascinatingly, they, there's like a real evil guy who's trying to evilize people 
and there's miraculous superpowers involved to try and fight back. Now, why is it? It's fascinating, right? Um, did someone forget to tell the entertainment industry that actually us, you know, secular scientific people, we don't believe in any of that stuff anymore, so why, why are you making stories about it? But somehow, we're still interested, fascinated, death, the underworld, is there more, this spiritual realm? We, we, it just keeps poking through. And then there's the mediums, the ghost hunters, the psychics, the crystals, the yoga, and the spiritual but not religious. There's something going on still in our secular society that we're craving for more. And Mark's biography kind of just unashamedly reports it. This is what happened. This guy had a demon. Okay. Um, And he tells us about the boss of the underworld as well. Um, That Satan, which means accuser, um, or the devil, which means slanderer. He's called the tester, um, the enemy, the murderer, um, and uh, the deceiver. Like he, one of the, the, the chief works of Satan is he deceives. He masks the rays, actually, as an angel of light. Now, that's really interesting in our society, right? Satan's all about appearances, all about image. And isn't that just what our society is about? Something goes wrong in politics, people are more concerned about the optics than the ethics. We're all about image, and Satan loves it. And like the bosses of the kind of criminal underworld, Satan knows how to exploit and enslave people, not mostly by kind of scare tactics and guns to the head and uh, horses' head in people's beds like all those mafia movies, or in Satan's case by spinning heads in you know, exorcist kind of movies. Mostly that's not how Satan does his work, actually. Mostly it's like the criminal bosses of the underworld, simply by giving people what they want. And then he's got them. Maybe you actually notice this in Ephesians 2. So you don't have to be possessed to be under the influence of the evil one. Ephesians 2 on the screen. Um, it's describing our situation before Jesus, and here's what it says. It says, You were dead in your sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's a phrase for the devil or Satan among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now, um, there's three great enemies of humanity in the Bible. If you've never kind of um, heard this kind of little triad put, um, write this down, the world, the flesh, and the devil, okay? And they're all here. I don't know if you notice this, right? And what it's saying is, as we kind of just follow the course of the world, right, that is... um, when, you, when we stay, you know, hash on trend with our culture and what it's about, consumerism, materialism, kind of a little bit of God but mostly just sideline, we are following the course of the world. And what's happening at that very same time is it says we're following the prince of the power of the air. We're just caught up in his schemes to kind of put God over there. And at the very same time, it's not like he's kind of bending our will to do something that we'd never want to do. He's actually just using our own desires against us because what are we doing? We're carrying out the desires of the body and the mind in our selfish, fleshly, sinful side of who we are. All that's going on. Or in other words, and here's the quote, it's on the next slide. In other words, instead of fearing satanic possession, we should be deeply worried about being normal. This is the real concern. We become slaves and servants of the devil just by being normal human beings and doing what normal human beings do. 
And when modern Western men or women refuse to acknowledge a spiritual realm as they blindly champion the cause of a secular society, the devil is laughing on both sides of his more jaws gullet. He's loving it. Now, friends, um, if you don't acknowledge the spiritual realm, if you don't allow for some force of evil, there's going to be a couple of problems. One is your struggle to make sense of what you really want to say is evil. But if there's nothing more, and we're all just kind of here, and it's just random natural processes, there is no such thing as good and evil. So when you see what you think is evil, you've got no way to explain it. But if we believe this, we do. And there's another thing. If we don't acknowledge, we refuse to kind of allow for the possibility of a real force of evil in the world, one of the things that happens is we inevitably kind of locate evil in the people that we happen to disagree with. And there's a word for that, and it's called demonizing other people. And isn't that an interesting word to use in this case? It's almost like they've become the incarnation of evil because we don't believe in this other thing. So here's Mark saying, actually, there's a better, perhaps more challenging way to see the world. And he takes us behind the kind of curtain to see the, at times, ugly reality of the spiritual underworld. This means, friends, we have a greater enemy than flesh and blood or political ideologies and all the rest. We are actually, you and I, every one of us, caught up in a spiritual battle of eternal proportions. What is unseen is more significant than what is seen. But here's the kicker. This this spiritual underworld is mostly on the margins, not the middle of the Bible. Right? We're not actually meant to kind of go out of here obsessed with Satan and kind of desperately in fear of the underworld. Or in every single problem, suddenly going, well, I'm under spiritual attack. Well, maybe I was just rude to my colleague at work, actually. Um, we're not meant to kind of see every um, problem and go, well, that's, you know, that's a demon and let's cast out the demon of dad jokes or something because, you know, that's... We're not meant to be obsessed with Satan because, and, and actually worst of all, occasionally you'll hear stories of people who have died at the hands of people trying to perform some sort of strange exorcism. There's a story from the year 2000 in New South Wales of um, a two-year-old child dying because the mother was trying to exorcise some demon by pouring water down the child's throat and the little boy or girl drowned. Now, friends, that has nothing to do with Christianity, right? Death, destruction, who does that belong to? Satan. Not the Lord Jesus, who is about life, truth, joy, justice, as we'll see. But see, we're not to go out of here obsessed with Satan because the main character here isn't Satan, it's Jesus. Jesus. Although, and interestingly, the demons seem to know this better than anyone. Okay, um, it's time for a showdown. Let's uh, read from Mark chapter 5 and verse 6 uh, in our Bibles. And when, and when the man saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. 
And to be honest, it's not really much of a showdown, actually. I mean, the man comes and he falls down before Jesus. He begs Jesus. And, and interestingly, the man says, what do you want to do with me? It's like, um, you know, the, the enemy's taken some prisoners of war. The commandos land on the beach. Out comes the enemy, enemy and says, oh, like, what are you here for? <laughs> what do you want? Oh, well, what about those you know, prisoners of war? Um, notice, too, the unclean spirits use Jesus' name. Right, because in magic, back in the ancient world, in real life, as well as through the kind of Harry Potter in the modern world, names have power. Right? He who must not be named is. Except you shouldn't have said it, but you know, that's okay. Um, th- th- there's this idea that names have power, right? That that's how you can get power over someone. If you know their name, you can you know, cast a spell on them if you know their name. But it's interesting, you know, um, even if everyone else is oblivious to who Jesus is, the demons are the ones in the gospel biographies who figured it out. They know what's going down in first century Israel. They know Jesus' true identity. They know what Jesus has come for. They, they sense that he might torture them because if Jesus come to bring God's kingdom of truth, love, joy, justice, he's going to kick out Satan's kingdom, which is about death, destruction, lies, deception. And so they sense that. Um, and then Mark fills in a little bit of the backstory. He says, actually, Jesus had already told the spirit to come out of the man. Jesus asked him, what's your name? My name is Legion, for we are many. Uh, in the Roman kind of empire, it kind of slightly changed through history, but there's, that's like 5,000 soldiers, right, in a legion. Now, I don't know if, if this is saying that there were five or 50 or 5,000 demons, but basically there is an army of Satan somehow affecting and influencing this man. I mean, no wonder that no one could bind him and no one could subdue him. It's like those, I know you see those strongest man in the world competitions and there's someone like pulling a 747, you know, down the runway. It's like this guy would have won, hands down, if it weren't so desperately tragic. But then this whole epic showdown is just a non-event. And the spirits actually start negotiating. Because that's what you do, isn't it? When you know the number's up and you're outgunned, um, just ask any like four-year-old, that's, this is how you go. You start negotiating. Um, I do love when our kids negotiate the wrong way. Like, you know, I'll, I'll give you three lollies if you do that. Say, what about two? I'm like, sure, that's fine. Um, we don't, that's not how we parent. That was a bad example. <laughs> um, the unclean spirits, they, um, they're, they're negotiating. They, they want to go into this herd of pigs, like as a host. Um, that's kind of interesting. Um, it's worth noticing, this was a, re- a non-Jewish region, which is why there actually happens to be a herd of pigs there. Like Mark is accurately recording the geography and history of first century Israel. There wouldn't have been pigs in a Jewish region. And Jesus allows this whole kind of negotiation, I, I suspect because it's not yet the final day when Satan and evil will finally be dealt with and banished. Um, the spirits enter the pigs. The pig, pigs promptly rush to the lake and their death. Maybe because the pigs are kind of reacting violently against that. Um, Perhaps because the sea is like the way to the underworld and to death and somehow that's the way home. But I think especially it's a picture of what was their ultimate goal with this man. That they were at work to slowly destroy him and bring him to his death. If they can't get the man, they'll take the pigs. But don't be distracted by the pigs and miss the point of what's really going on here, right? This was a strong man that no one could bind. Now, Mark's already set us up for this kind of last year when we were reading it, but all the language is back there in Mark chapter 3. 
And what's happened in that scene is Jesus has cast out some spirits. And no one's arguing about the fact. Um, actually, this is kind of well known in the history of the, the first century. Jesus was known as a healer. Um, that wasn't kind of ever argued by his detractors and opponents. They just argued about how. And mostly they said, well, he does it because he's kind of in league with Satan. And Jesus is like, that's ridiculous. And here's what he says on the screen, Mark chapter 3. It's like, kind of like a mini parable. He says, Jesus says, no, 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 that's ridiculous that I'm in league, in league with Satan. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now, Mark's going to set us up for this, right? And now we've met a guy who's a literal strongman that no one can bind. Same word, and no one can subdue. Except that Jesus can. And Jesus binds, subdues, overpowers these evil forces and sets this man free. Rescues him. Now, friends, um, spiritual forces are real, but the showdown's over as soon as Jesus shows up. Because Jesus, he's the one with real power to rescue you and me from evil. And friends, whatever is going on in your life, maybe there's suffering and maybe there's injustice and maybe you've been wronged and maybe you feel like you're under spiritual attack somehow. But friends, you need to know Jesus is in control. And evil will not triumph. And one day Jesus will put it all to bed. We need not fear. Now that's good Good news, although not everyone sees it that way. Let's read this last section from uh, Mark chapter 5 and verse 14. Mark 5 verse 14. The herdsmen fled and they told this um, incident in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who'd seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, that was a ten cities, um, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Right? Um, this is, you know, first century news. The news gets out. People are like, what, is this real? And they come to check it out for themselves with their own eyes. They find this man not wailing, harm, or crazed, but clothed, seated, and in his right mind. Um, and notice, friends, um, Mark isn't just trying to show us here like the raw power of Jesus. He's trying to show us the mercy of Jesus to restore people to the way that God wants us to be. Satan's mission is always to destroy and to deface. He's the one punching holes through masterpieces. Actually, um, I think we've got this slide. They, uh, that masterpiece that was destroyed took them 18 months to restore this Monet. And um, they had to, with you know, you can see it under the microscope there, actually thread by thread individually of the canvas with some special adhesive, glue it back together, um, redo the backing. Um, big chips of paint had come off. They glued those ones back on. There were a few they couldn't find, so they kind of filled it in and coloured it in until they could bring it back to its, to its former glory. 
That's kind of how we talk about it, isn't it? Um, you pop that down now. Friends, Jesus came to rescue and to restore us to all that God made us to be so that God's image could actually be seen in our lives, um, in lives of love and joy and generosity. Um, now, when the locals hear, they kind of hear um, good news about the man, bad news about the pigs, and they decide, you know what, we could kind of just do without the disruption. Thanks very much, Jesus. You can take your little travelling you know, miracle gospel show off to another town. Thanks very much. And especially because they are afraid. Do you notice that? Maybe because of what they've lost out on the pigs and what that's going to mean, but also something to do with Jesus. I mean, the disciples were afraid of the storm until Jesus calmed the storm, and now they're afraid of him. And I tell you, friends, if you have any fear of this spiritual realm, you should be more afraid of Jesus than 5,000 demons. That's part of the message of this story. Except with Jesus, there's nothing to fear. But notice this isn't some comfy Jesus. This isn't Jesus as a kind of spiritual accessory to kind of tack on to our lives to, for a bit of a value add and, you know, at our discretion. And it might be at times that it's kind of tempting to think, you know, Jesus, I just wish you'd leave that bit of my life alone. Um, it's just a bit uncomfortable for you to kind of go there and change it. And I, I just, could you just stay away from that? But notice the real Jesus is more powerful and more merciful and more interesting, actually. Isn't Jesus interesting? Um, and he, yes, he actually does want to come and overturn your life. And he's going to make it uncomfortable at times so that he can turn it the right way up and restore your life and mine to all that God made and intended it to be. See, this story is not only of Jesus' power over evil, but Jesus' mercy to restore us. Jesus says to this guy, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Right? Um, tell your friends about God. What does the man do? Tells everyone about Jesus. It's like a little hint that maybe this Jesus guy is actually God in the flesh. But if you've got questions about that, we just kind of need to keep reading and see what Mark's got to show us. Um, this man who's formerly known as Legion goes around telling the world, notice the phrase, what Jesus has done for him. Something that he could never, ever have done for himself. Like every human being, he was caught in the clutches of the spiritual underworld. Now, friends, this is why religion is no help to us. Right? Religion is no help to us. Religion always ends up making us self-righteous. Because religion says, look, if you live a good life and you know, live up to it, then God will owe you a good life. That if you can just pull up your socks and try harder and get your act together and sort yourself out, you can kind of save yourself. Be righteous yourself which of course is going to end up in self-righteousness. That's why religion tends to breed superiority. We look down on those that we perceive having kind of lived up to the standard that we think we have, and there is no sympathy. But if the truth is that you and I were powerless, and you and I were enslaved, and you and I were deceived by the devil, and you and I were addicted to sin that we could not say no of ultimately... What good news is it to know that Jesus saved us when we could not save ourselves? And ultimately, Jesus saved us not um, 
ultimately Jesus saved us on the cross by not saving himself. As he died there, the ultimate showdown with evil, the strangest battle in human history where he wins, not with a show of power, but a show of weakness, with his arms stretched out to all humanity to welcome home everyone who will come to him. And he says, go tell your friends about all that I have done for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that when we were far from you, when we were lost in our own sin and selfishness, when we were caught up and deceived by the lies of the devil, that even then, when we'd been rebellious and lost, you loved us, that you sent your son Jesus amongst us to live the life that we should have lived and die the death we deserve to die. And Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus is the one with power over evil the one with the power to rescue us and the one with the mercy and love to restore us. And Heavenly Father, um, I pray for my friends here today um, that wherever we are with you, that you would help us to know how lost we were, how loved we are, and that we have good news for the whole world. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about St Luke's Anglican Church, please visit www.clovelly.org.au.